Thus far in Genesis, we have seen the world created by God. He forms spaces by separating light from dark, waters above from waters below, land from sea. And he fills these spaces with sun and stars, with plants and animals, and finally with his image, man and woman, Adam and Eve. We've seen the Garden of Eden is a sanctuary. It's a holy place. Adam is the priest called to work and to keep God's house, to hear and speak God's word. And Eve is his counterpart in this. Call and response, melody and harmony, king and queen, co-heirs of creation. And together they are called to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with the worship of God. And all is very good. The last week we saw the serpent slither in with his forked tongue speaking deceit. And humanity failed to keep God's word. They grasped after that which was not given. And for their rebellion they were cast out of the sanctuary, out of the garden. And since then all humanity has wandered in fear forever east of Eden. But God, in his mercy, sacrificed animals to cover and clothe humanity. And in his mercy, he promised that one day the serpent would be defeated by the seed of the woman. And so the hope of all humanity hangs on the descendants of Eve. And chapter 4 of the book of Genesis tells us about the first children of the woman, the first children of our first parents. Will they crush the head of the serpent, or will they too listen to his lies? So let me pray for us as we come to Genesis chapter 4 today. Heavenly Father, open our ears to hear and receive with joy your word today. Reveal to us the pride and arrogance that separate us from you. Reveal to us the way of forgiveness and acceptance that you have provided. Grant us a vision of Jesus the faithful and innocent seed of the woman who has shed his blood to bring us back into your presence. In his name we pray. Amen. Now Genesis chapter 4 tells us that despite their fall into sin, Adam and Eve obey God's call to be fruitful and multiply and fill the word, the world. Verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. The Hebrew name Cain sounds like the word that means to get or to acquire. Verse 2, and again she bore his brother, Abel. Abel's name sounds like the Hebrew word for vapor or breath, that which is fleeting and, and hard to hold on to. And so perhaps from the beginning here, we have set before us the son of the grasping hand and the son of the open hand. What the author does not make clear is, or does make clear is that these children grew up and they grew skilled in different arts. He says, now Abel was a keeper of sheep or a keeper of the flock and Cain a worker of the ground, the Adamah. Now, this is the first use of the word flock in Scripture, but the ground, the Adamah, we know well. This is the ground from which Adam was created. This is the ground which was also cursed because of Adam's disobedience. 
and it is the ground to which he shall return when he dies. And so this imagery of ground remains a central part of these early chapters of Genesis, as we will see. So Abel was a keeper of the flock, and Cain was a worker of the ground. Verse 3, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. So what we have here is a primeval worship service, isn't it? Cain and Abel are going to church. Uh, and this is the first kind of explicit reference to rites of worship that we have in Scripture. And we see that it involved bringing offerings to the Lord, bringing the fruit of one's labor as a gift of tribute to God. Now remember what I said when I preached on Genesis 1 three weeks ago. The best way to understand Genesis is to try to hear it with the ears of the original audience. Put yourself in the sandals of an ancient Israelite, hearing these things from maybe the lips of a priest at the temple. The worship of Cain and Abel here, it might seem kind of unfamiliar to you and I. I don't think anybody brought a sheaf of wheat or a side of beef to church this morning for the offering, did you? No, right? It's a little bit different. Uh, you could have. I'd accept sides of beef if you want, if you want to. But, but no, if you're hearing it with the ears of an ancient Israelite, this all sounds perfectly normal, doesn't it? This is how you worship too. You bring animal and grain offerings to the tabernacle or to the temple to be offered to God, and they are burned on the altar and the smoke rises and ascends into the glory cloud presence of Yahweh. And you know that the offerings you bring in accord with the law are acceptable to God. They are a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. So when ancient Israelites are hearing this, they wouldn't bat an eye at this description of worship. This would be very familiar to them. And their people had been doing much the same for centuries. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. But then we're told, verse 4, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And here's the first hint of conflict in the story. Something is not good. Something did not go according to plan. And one of the puzzling questions about this story is, well, why? Why did God accept Abel's offering and, and not Cain's? Now, many interpreters jump straight to the book of Hebrews to answer this question. Why was Abel accepted and Cain was not? Our epistle reading today from Hebrews 11 tells us, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So, so some say, well, Abel must have had faith. And so it's, it's all about the heart. It's all about the internal condition of the worshiper. It doesn't matter what you offer the Lord as long as you do it in faith. That must be the difference. Well, hang on a second. Now, I don't deny that the Lord requires a faithful and trusting heart from those who would worship him. The prophets certainly rebuke the children of Israel when they bring God the right offering with the wrong intent behind it. 
God abhors empty, vain worship. But even Hebrews makes the point that Abel was not accepted just because he had faith. He was accepted because that faith also led him to offer to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Abel's faith led him to offer an acceptable sacrifice. So why was Abel's sacrifice acceptable? Well, again, the author of Genesis doesn't elaborate here. Uh, Does the immediate context help us? Is there anything that Adam and Eve might have learned about sacrifice which they could have passed on to Abel and Cain? Now, surprisingly, even though we're only three chapters into the book so far, we have already seen at least one approved sacrifice. It's just not very obvious. When Adam and Eve sinned, they realized they were naked, and for the first time they felt fear of God. They knew they had sinned, and so in their guilt they made coverings for themselves, and they made those coverings out of fig leaves, the fruit of the ground. But were those leaf Covering sufficient to cover or to atone for sin. That's what the Hebrew word atonement means, covering. Was the fruit of the ground sufficient to cover sin? Well, apparently not, because Genesis 3.21 says, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. God covered Adam and Eve with tunics of animal hide. And you know, as well as I do, that you can't make a garment out of animal hide without killing an animal. So in Genesis 3, God provides a covering for sinful humanity. And he does it by slaying an animal. Were Adam and Eve meant to learn something from this? Perhaps. There's also this to consider. How have I counseled us to read the book of Genesis? to read it through the eyes of ancient Israelites. This book was written for them, after all. And so I would submit to you that an ancient Israelite would have inherently known why Abel's sacrifice was acceptable and Cain's was not. Ancient Israelites knew all about animal offerings and grain offerings. They knew that in the Levitical system of worship, in the law, both kinds of offerings were technically acceptable. Israelites offered slain animals in what they called the purification offering and in the ascension offering or whole burnt offering and in the peace offering. But they also offered the fruits of the earth in the tribute offering or the grain offering. So both were accepted by God. But ancient Israelites also knew that the animal sacrifice was the primary and the essential offering. They knew that the shedding of blood was crucial. Only blood could open the doorway from earth to heaven. Only blood could make atonement, make covering for sin. And they knew that even when a person did offer a grain offering, the fruits of the earth, this was always offered on top of and along with the animal sacrifice. It was never offered on its own. The animal sacrifice was the necessary condition. And so because Ancient Israelites knew the animal sacrifices represent people. They represent people. Plants don't, right? 
Animals are creations of the sixth day, like humans. Sheep and calves and goats in Hebrew, they are called sons of the herd. Plants are not. When God provided Abraham with a ram caught in a thicket, Abraham offered the ram in place of Isaac his son, not the thicket. Right? Only animals are substitutes for people. Every ancient Israelite inherently knew this. Now some interpreters say, but that all comes later. Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel, they didn't have the law. They didn't have the book of Leviticus. They didn't know that stuff. Well, we really don't know what Adam and Eve knew. We don't know all that God might have told them, but again, God had killed an animal to cover them before. And we do know that the ancient Israelite audience of this story knew that. And this understanding of animal sacrifice was so ingrained in them, it probably never even crossed the author's mind to spell that out for us. As the author of Hebrews also says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Fig leaves don't cover sin. Fruit from the cursed ground cannot lift the curse. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Verse 5, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Now notice how God addresses not only Cain's heart, but also his deeds, right? He says, if you do well, or if you do not do well. See, apparently Cain knows what he is supposed to do. He just doesn't want to do it. Maybe he is proud of his produce, these fruits of the ground that he has grown. He doesn't see why he should have to offer an animal. He's, he's not good with animals. He's good with plants. He thinks his plants should be good enough for God. But that's not what God has required. And God is very gracious here, if you think about it. He basically says, why are you upset, Cain? I haven't made it complicated. I haven't made it impossible for you. I've actually made it quite simple. Don't you know that you know what you're supposed to do? And if you do it, you'll be accepted. It's basically guaranteed. Think about it. If Cain doesn't have an animal to bring, all he has to do is ask his brother. His brother is right there. He's a herder of the flocks. The acceptable offering is right there. Cain knows what it is. It's available to him. But for whatever reason, Cain refuses to follow the path of worship that God has given him. Cain refuses to do what he knows he should do, what he easily could do. He refuses to do well, to do what is right and pleasing to God. And God warns him, if you continue down this path, sin is crouching at the door, waiting to pounce on you, waiting to seize its opportunity like a snake in the grass. Don't believe me? Ask your mom and dad. So God counsels Cain, choose the path of life, crush the head of the serpent, overrule your sin, or your sin will be overruling you. 
Instead, Cain hardens his heart. He lets his wounded pride grow to anger, and he lets his anger rule over him, and he lets his anger fester into sin. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And thus we have the story of the very first murder and the very first fratricide, brother killing brother. We're just one generation into this fallen world, and already humanity's wickedness has risen to the level of murdering your own family. And we all ask, why? Why did Cain kill his innocent brother? The fault was with Cain, wasn't it? Not with anything Abel had done. The Apostle John poses this same question in his first epistle, 1 John 3.12, and why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. His deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now it's easy to rebuke Cain for his wickedness, but we do this too when we are confronted by our failings, confronted by what we should be doing but we don't want to do, but we're too proud to confess our sin. We're too proud to receive correction. And, and in our pride, we instead project the hurt from our rejection onto the one who is doing what is right, the one who is receiving uh, the favor and the acceptance that we crave. We imagine they're showing us up, that they're making us look bad, that they're doing this to hurt us. So we want to remove them from the picture. If they're the ones making us look bad, preventing us from getting what we want, then we have to take them down a notch. And so we maybe slander them, or we accuse them, or we marginalize them. Maybe we do not murder. But then again, our Lord said that hatred and slander amount to the same thing. Cain simply goes that one step further. You can almost... Imagine what he's thinking. Look at him. The favored son. Mom and dad love him. God loves him. Everything he touches turns to gold. I sweat and slave away in the field, and what thanks do I get? Everything would be better if Abel wasn't here. So Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then we have this scene that's reminiscent of chapter 3 when the Lord came looking for Adam and Eve after their sin. Verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? And just as his parents had done, Cain seeks to shift the blame. He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? But of course, just as he knew what was going on in the garden in Genesis 3, here in Genesis 4, the Lord knows very well where Abel is. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Blood bears witness. A death has occurred, an injustice has been done, and to a God of justice that blood cries out for vindication. And the judge of all the earth renders a verdict which echoes the curse placed on Adam in chapter 3, verse 11. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. 
You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Adam was created from the ground to be a worker and keeper of the ground, but when he rebelled against God, the ground became the prosecutor of the curse against him. Adam's work would now be painful for him. Thorns and thistles would grow up among his crops. He would sweat and toil just to eat. And when he died, he would return to the ground. The ground becomes the prosecutor of God's curse against Adam. And we see here the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Cain is now cursed in much the same way. Perhaps it's even more pointed for Cain because before all his success and pride came from what he was able to produce from the ground, didn't it? But now his work will not be fruitful. The ground that had once flourished under his hand will now fail at his touch. He who had been so connected to the land, tied to it season after season as good farmers are, now he will be a fugitive, a wanderer. He is disconnected from the land. And so for this reason, Cain cries out, verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now the first audience would have understand, uh, understood this. Life for life. If Cain was known to be a murderer, a brother killer, his life would be forfeit. His own family might even seek to avenge the death of Abel. In the ancient world, Cain would not be safe wherever he went. But the Lord shows mercy to murderers. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. East of Eden. Humanity continues to stray farther and farther from the sanctuary. Now, we don't know the nature of this mark that's put on Cain. All we know is what's said here. Some indication that he was under the protection of the Lord. In the ancient world, cycles of, of vengeance and family feuds could go on for generations and generations. So even as he dispenses justice here, you can see that the Lord is also mitigating the fallout from humanity's sin on the community and on the world. And this will continue to be a theme in the early chapters of Genesis. But Genesis 4 goes on to tell us about the descendants of Cain. They are famed as city dwellers and builders, craftsmen and musicians. There's even a song from one of his descendants named Lamech. I guess he was sort of the Johnny Cash of his day. If you read that song, you'll see what I mean. But then in verse 25, we're told, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. So the seed line of the woman, the, ch the child of the woman, we see that this line of righteous Abel was cut off. 
But there's a kind of resurrection for Abel here, isn't there? The Lord raised up a new seed of the woman in his place. And so the promise of Genesis 3.15 still holds. There is a seed of the woman who will come to crush the serpent's head. And we already see the faith of this line of Seth. We're told at that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And that refers to worship. The line of Seth is known for faithful worship of Yahweh. And if we were to go on into chapter 5, we would see that from this line of Seth, we eventually get to Noah. His name means rest. He is the son of rest. He is the seed of the woman who will preserve the line through the waters of judgment and bring rest to the creation. And so we'll speak of Noah in depth next Sunday, but he comes from this line, this line of Seth who was raised up by God in place of righteous Abel who died. Indeed, this story of Cain and Abel, this resonates throughout the pages of Scripture. This first murder is never forgotten by God or by the faithful descendants of Seth. The blood of Abel never ceases to cry from the ground, bearing witness, crying for vindication. And we see this when we come to the Gospels and to the earthly ministry of our Lord. We saw it in our Gospel reading from uh, this morning from Matthew, which is paralleled in Mark and Luke as well. There we saw that Jesus was in the temple at Jerusalem. And he's rebuking the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day. He rebukes them for their hypocrisy because they display lives of strict religious observance but in secret, they are corrupt. They're almost a mere opposite of, of Cain. They, don't want it. they do what is right, but they have no faith, no trust inside. They display lives of strict religious observance, but in secret, they are corrupt, taking advantage of the poor, stealing, cheating, slandering, greedy, and self-indulgent. And at the top of this long list of woes against them, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees because they, like their fathers before them, like Cain, they have been murdering the righteous men whom God has sent to them. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes. He's speaking of his apostles here some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town. This is what we see in the book of Acts, isn't it? So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That range that Jesus describes there, that encompasses the whole Old Testament. It begins with the murder of Abel here in Genesis 4 and all the way down 
to the murder of Zechariah in 2 Chronicles 24, which is the last book of the Old Testament in the Hebrew uh, version. Cain's murder of Abel begins this long line of God's people killing their innocent brothers, killing righteous men out of envy and, and hard-heartedness. And all that innocent blood is soaking into the sand of Israel. And it's building up a case against God's people. And Jesus says, all that innocent blood shed since the dawn of time down to his own day, it still cries out, just as the blood of Abel did. And that flood of blood guilt, Jesus says, will fall on his generation, on the people of Jerusalem living in the first century. And from that climactic woe in Matthew 23, Jesus goes on from there to describe the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, which would indeed come within that generation in the year 70 when Rome laid waste to the city. That was the end of the old covenant world. It was the sentence rendered on the sons of Cain. It was the verdict to answer the blood of the martyrs from Abel to Zechariah and the apostles, and the most important martyr of that line, Jesus. For the fourth chapter of Genesis is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Like Abel, Jesus was a good shepherd. Like Abel, he did only what was pleasing to the Lord. He offered all that he did as an act of worship to the Father. And as with Abel, many of Jesus' brothers, his fellow Jews, refused to hear the Lord's rebuke. They refused to follow the path of acceptance God had provided. They proved to be sons of Cain, sons of the serpent. The witness of their faithful brother Jesus, the greatest prophet sent by God, his righteous example only drove them into jealous rage. And so the scribes and Pharisees and the chief priests rose up against their brother Jesus and killed him. Matthew tells us, Pilate washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Clearly, they did not realize that this blood was the blood of Abel and the blood of Zechariah, and of every prophet murdered by the people of Israel for 4,000 years. Who would knowingly call down such a judgment upon themselves? And yet, this was the will of God. He sent his son to be the greater Abel, shepherd and lamb. God sent his son to be the sacrifice that stands in for all the children of men who would lay their hands on him and claim him as their offering. And he was sacrificed on the cross, blood and water pouring from his side, seeping into the ground, bearing witness to the death of the greater Abel. But three days later, the father raised him from the grave as the greater Seth the resurrected seed of the woman who finally, once and for all, crushed the head of the serpent crouching at the door. The righteous son of promise who leads all of creation to call upon the name of the Lord and worship. And that is why the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant, a new creation. 
he tells us that the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. The blood of Abel called for judgment on the one who shed that blood. The blood of Abel called for punishment for sinners like you and me. But the blood of Jesus cries out that the debt has been paid. Sin has been slain. Death has been put to death. To those who put their trust in Jesus, His blood speaks not condemnation, but salvation and deliverance from sin and death. And so today, we worship the greater Abel, Jesus Christ. And we come under His blood, which speaks a better word. And we ask Him to cleanse us of pride and of envy and hatred and murderous thoughts. For we know that His death has brought us life. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, though you were the good shepherd and the spotless lamb, you allowed your brothers to murder you. You submitted yourself to death and the grave for us. You bore the punishment for the sins of the world. And you rose again to bring us hope of everlasting life. And so we give you all thanks and praise. And we seek to follow your example as the great brother keeper. Teach us also to put away our sin and to lay down our lives for the good of others. We ask it as those who are in your name. Amen.